Part two of Bartleby the Scrivener. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Newfeld. Bartleby the Scrivener, a story of Wall Street by Herman Melville. Part two. Some days passed, the Scrivener being employed upon another lengthy work. His late remarkable conduct led me to regard his ways narrowly. I observed that he never went to dinner. Indeed, he never went anywhere. As yet I had never of my personal knowledge known him to be outside of my office. He was a perpetual sentry in the corner. At about eleven o'clock, though, in the morning, I noticed that Ginger Nut would advance toward the opening in Bartleby's screen, as if silently beckoned thither by a gesture invisible to me where I sat. The boy would then leave the office jingling a few pence, and reappear with a handful of Ginger Nuts, which he delivered in the hermitage, receiving two of the cakes for his trouble. He lives then on Ginger Nuts, thought I never eats a dinner, properly speaking. He must be a vegetarian, then. But no, he never eats even vegetables. He eats nothing but ginger-nuts. My mind, then, ran on in reveries concerning the probable effects upon the human constitution of living entirely on ginger-nuts. Ginger-nuts are so called because they contain ginger as one of their peculiar constituents, and the final flavoring one. Now, what was ginger? A hot, spicy thing. Was Bartleby hot and spicy? Not at all. Ginger, then, had no effect on Bartleby. Probably he preferred it should have none. Nothing so aggravates an earnest person as a passive resistance. If the individual so resisted be of a not inhumane temper, and the resisting one perfectly harmless in his passivity, then, in the better moods of the former, he will endeavor charitably to construe to his imagination what proves impossible to be solved by his judgment. Even so, for the most part, I regarded Bartleby in his ways. Poor fellow, thought I. He means no mischief. It is plain he intends no insolence. His aspect sufficiently evinces that his eccentricities are involuntary. He is useful to me. I can get along with him. If I turn him away, the chances are he will fall in with some less indulgent employer, and then he will be rudely treated, and perhaps driven forth miserably to starve. Yes, here I can cheaply purchase a delicious self-approval. To befriend Bartleby, to humor him in his strange willfulness, will cost me little or nothing, while I lay up in my soul what will eventually prove a sweet morsel for my conscience. But this mood was not invariable with me. The passiveness of Bartleby sometimes irritated me. I felt strangely goaded on to encounter him in new opposition, to elicit some angry spark from him answerable to my own. 
but indeed i might as well have essayed to strike fire with my knuckles against a bit of windsor soap but one afternoon the evil impulse in me mastered me and the following little scene ensued bartleby said i when those papers are all copied i will compare them with you i would prefer not to how surely you do not mean to persist in this mulish vagary no answer i threw open the folding doors near by and turning upon turkey and nippers exclaimed in an excited manner he says a second time he won't examine his papers what do you think of it turkey it was afternoon be it remembered turkey sat glowing like a brass boiler his bald head steaming his hands reeling among his blotted papers think of it roared turkey i think i'll just step behind his screen and black his eyes for him so saying turkey rose to his feet and threw his arms into a pugilistic position he was hurrying away to make good his promise when i detained him alarmed at the effect of incautiously rousing turkey's combativeness after dinner sit down turkey said i and hear what nippers has to say what do you think of it nippers would i not be justified in immediately dismissing bartleby excuse me that is for you to decide sir i think his conduct quite unusual and indeed unjust as regards turkey and myself but it may only be a passing whim ah exclaimed i you have strangely changed your mind then you speak very gently of him now all beer cried turkey gentleness is effects of beer nippers and i dine together to-day you see how gentle i am sir shall i go and black his eyes you refer to bartleby i suppose no not to-day turkey i replied pray put up your fists i closed the doors and again advanced towards bartleby i felt additional incentives tempting me to my fate i burned to be rebelled against again i remembered that bartleby never left the office bartleby said i ginger nut is away just step round to the post-office won't you it was but a three-minute walk and see if there is anything for me i would prefer not to you will not i prefer not i staggered to my desk and sat there in a deep study my blind inveteracy returned was there anything in which i could procure myself to be ignominiously repulsed by this lean penniless white my hired clerk what added thing is there perfectly reasonable that he will be sure to refuse to do bartleby no answer bartleby in a louder tone no answer bartleby i roared like a very ghost agreeable to the laws of magical invocation at the third summons 
he appeared at the entrance of his hermitage. "'Go to the next room, and tell Nippers to come to me.' "'I prefer not to,' he respectfully and slowly said, and mildly disappeared. "'Very good, Bartleby,' said I, in a quiet sort of serenely severe self-possessed tone, intimating the unalterable purpose of some terrible retribution very close at hand. At the moment I half intended something of the kind, but, upon the whole, as it was drawing towards my dinner hour, I thought it best to put on my hat and walk home for the day, suffering much from perplexity and distress of mind. Shall I acknowledge it? The conclusion of this whole business was that it soon became a fixed fact of my chambers that a pale young scrivener by the name of Bartleby had a desk there, that he copied from me at the usual rate of four cents a folio, one hundred words, but he was permanently exempt from examining the work done by him that duty being transferred to Turkey and Nippers, one of compliment doubtless to their superior acuteness. Moreover, said Bartleby was never, on any account, to be dispatched on the most trivial errand of any sort, and that even if entreated to take upon him such a matter, it was generally understood that he would prefer not to, in other words, that he would refuse point-blank. As days passed on, I became considerably reconciled to Bartleby. His steadiness, his freedom from all dissipation, his incessant industry, except when he chose to throw himself into a standing reverie behind his screen, his great stillness, his unalterableness of demeanour under all circumstances, made him a valuable acquisition. One prime thing was this he was always there. First in the morning, continually through the day, and the last at night. I had a singular confidence in his honesty. I felt my most precious papers perfectly safe in his hands. Sometimes, to be sure, I could not, for the very soul of me, avoid falling into sudden spasmodic passions with him for it was exceedingly difficult to bear in mind all the time those strange peculiarities, privileges, and unheard-of exemptions, forming the tacit stipulations on Bartleby's part under which he remained in my office. Now and then, in the eagerness of dispatching pressing business, I would inadvertently summon Bartleby, in a short rapid tone, to put his finger, say, on the incipient tie of a bit of red tape, with which I was about compressing some papers. Of course, from behind the screen, the usual answer, I prefer not to, was sure to come. And then, how could a human creature with the common infirmities of our nature refrain from bitterly exclaiming under such perverseness, such unreasonableness? However, Every added repulse of this sort, which I received, only tended to lessen the probability of my repeating the inadvertence. 
Here it must be said, that according to the custom of most legal gentlemen occupying chambers in densely populated law-buildings, there were several keys to my door. One was kept by a woman residing in the attic, which person weekly scrubbed and daily swept and dusted my apartments. Another was kept by Turkey, for convenience' sake. The third I sometimes carried in my own pocket. The fourth I knew not who had. Now, one Sunday morning I happened to go to Trinity Church to hear a celebrated preacher, and finding myself rather early on the ground, I thought I would walk around to my chambers for a while. Luckily I had my key with me. But, applying it to the lock, I found it resisted by something inserted from the inside. Quite surprised, I called out, when, to my consternation, a key was turned from within, and thrusting his lean visage at me, and holding the door ajar, the apparition of Bartleby appeared, in his shirt-sleeves, and otherwise in a strangely tattered dishabille saying quietly that he was sorry, but he was deeply engaged just then, and preferred not admitting me at present. In a brief word or two he moreover added that perhaps I had better walk around the block two or three times, and by that time he would probably have concluded his affairs. Now, the utterly unsurmised appearance of Bartleby, tenanting my law-chambers of a Sunday morning, with his cadaverously gentlemanly nonchalance, yet with all firm and self-possessed, had such a strange effect upon me, that incontinently I slunk away from my own door, and did as desired. But, not without sundry twinges of impotent rebellion against the mild effrontery of this unaccountable scrivener, Indeed, it was his wonderful mildness, chiefly, which not only disarmed me, but unmanned me, as it were. For I consider that one, for the time, is a sort of unmanned, when he tranquilly permits his hired clerk to dictate to him, and order him away from his own premises. Furthermore, I was full of uneasiness as to what Bartleby could possibly be doing in my office in his shirt-sleeves, and in an otherwise dismantled condition of a Sunday morning. Was anything amiss going on? Nay, that was out of the question. It was not to be thought of for a moment that Bartleby was an immoral person. But what could he be doing there? Copying? Nay, again! Whatever might be his eccentricities, Bartleby was an eminently decorous person. He would be the last man to sit down to his desk in any state approaching to nudity. Besides, it was Sunday, and there was something about Bartleby that forbade the supposition that he would by any secular occupation violate the proprieties of the day. Nevertheless, my mind was not pacified, and, full of a restless curiosity, at last I returned to the door. Without hindrance I inserted my key, opened it, and entered. Bartleby was not to be seen. I looked round anxiously, peeped behind his screen, 
but it was very plain that he was gone. Upon more closely examining the place, I surmised that for an indefinite period Bartleby must have ate, dressed, and slept in my office, and that too without plate, mirror, or bed. The cushioned seat of a rickety old sofa in one corner bore the faint impress of a lean reclining form. Rolled away under his desk I found a blanket, under the empty grate a blacking-box and brush, on a chair a tin basin with soap and a ragged towel, in a newspaper a few crumbs of ginger-nuts and a morsel of cheese. Yes, thought I, it is evident enough that Bartleby has been making his home here, keeping Bachelor's Hall all by himself. Immediately then the thought came sweeping across me. What miserable friendlessness and loneliness are here revealed! His poverty is great, but his solitude! How oh, horrible! Think of it! Of a Sunday, Wall Street is deserted as Petra, and every night of every day it is an emptiness. This building, too, which of weekdays hums with industry and life, at nightfall echoes with sheer vacancy, and all through Sunday is forlorn. And here Bartleby makes his home, sole spectator of a solitude which he has seen all populous, a sort of innocent and transformed Marius brooding among the ruins of Carthage. For the first time in my life a feeling of overpowering stinging melancholy seized me. Before I had never experienced aught but a not unpleasing sadness. The bond of common humanity now drew me irresistibly to gloom, a fraternal melancholy, for both I and Bartleby were sons of Adam. I remembered the bright silks and sparkling faces I had seen that day, in gala trim, swan-like sailing down the Mississippi of Broadway, and I contrasted them with the pallid copyist, and thought to myself, Ah, happiness courts the light, so we deem the world is gay, but misery hides aloof, so we deem that misery there is none. These sad fancyings, chimeras doubtless of a sick and silly brain, led on to other and more special thoughts concerning the eccentricities of Bartleby. Presentiments of strange discoveries hovered round me. The scrivener's pale form appeared to me laid out among uncaring strangers in its shivering winding sheet. Suddenly, I was attracted by Bartleby's closed desk, the key in open sight left in the lock. I mean no mischief, seek the gratification of no heartless curiosity, thought I. Besides, the desk is mine, and its contents too. So I will make bold to look within. Everything was methodically arranged, the papers smoothly placed. The pigeonholes were deep and removing the files of documents, I groped into their recesses. Presently I felt something there, and dragged it out. 
It was an old bandana handkerchief, heavy and knotted. I opened it, and saw it was a savings bank. I now recalled all the quiet mysteries which I had noted in the man. I remembered that he never spoke but to answer, that though at intervals he had considerable time to himself, yet I had never seen him reading, no, not even a newspaper, that for long periods he would stand looking out at his pale window behind the screen, upon the dead brick wall. I was quite sure he never visited any refectory or eating-house, while his pale face clearly indicated that he never drank beer like turkey, or tea or coffee even, like other men, that he never went anywhere in particular that I could learn, never went out for a walk, unless indeed that was the case at present, that he had declined telling who he was or whence he came, or whether he had any relatives in the world, that though so thin and pale, he never complained of ill health. And more than all, I remembered a certain unconscious air of pallid—how shall I call it?—of pallid haughtiness, say, or rather an austere reserve about him, which had positively awed me into my tame compliance with his eccentricities, when I feared to ask him to do the slightest incidental thing for me, even though I might know, from his long-continued motionlessness, that behind his screen he must be standing in one of those dead-walled reveries of his. Revolving all these things— and coupling them with the recently discovered fact that he made my office his constant abiding-place and home, and not forgetful of his morbid moodiness, revolving all these things, a prudential feeling began to steal over me. My first emotions had been those of pure melancholy and sincerest pity. But just in proportion as the forlornness of Bartleby grew and grew to my imagination, did that same melancholy merge into fear, that pity into repulsion. So true it is, and so terrible, too, that up to a certain point the thought or sight of misery enlists our best affections, but in certain special cases beyond that point it does not. They err who would assert that invariably this is owing to the inherent selfishness of the human heart. It rather proceeds from a certain hopelessness of remedying excessive and organic ill. To a sensitive being, pity is not seldom pain, and when at last it is perceived that such pity cannot lead to effectual succor, common sense bids the soul rid of it. What I saw that morning persuaded me that the scrivener was the victim of innate and incurable disorder. I might give alms to his body, but his body did not pain him. It was his soul that suffered, and his soul I could not reach. I did not accomplish the purpose of going to Trinity Church that morning. Somehow— the things I had seen disqualified me for the time from church-going. 
I walked homeward, thinking what I would do with Bartleby. Finally, I resolved upon this. I would put certain calm questions to him the next morning, touching his history, etc., and if he declined to answer them openly and unreservedly, and I supposed that he would prefer not, then to give him a twenty-dollar bill over and above whatever I might owe him, and tell him his services were no longer required, but that if in any other way I could assist him, I would be happy to do so, especially if he desired to return to his native place, wherever that might be, I would willingly help to defray the expenses. Moreover, if, after reaching home, he found himself at any time in want of aid, a letter from him would be sure of a reply. The next morning came. Bartleby, said I, gently calling to him behind his screen. No reply. Bartleby, said I, in a still gentler tone, come here. I am not going to ask you to do anything you would prefer not to do. I simply wish to speak to you. Upon this he noiselessly slid into view. Will you tell me, Bartleby, where you were born? I would prefer not to. Will you tell me anything about yourself? I would prefer not to. But what reasonable objection can you have to speak to me? I feel friendly towards you. He did not look at me while I spoke, but kept his glance fixed upon my bust of Cicero, which, as I then sat, was directly behind me, some six inches above my head. "'What is your answer, Bartleby?' said I, after waiting a considerable time for a reply, during which his countenance remained immovable only there was the faintest conceivable tremor of the white attenuated mouth. "'At present I prefer to give no answer,' he said, and retired into his hermitage. It was rather weak in me, I confess, but his manner on this occasion nettled me. Not only did there seem to lurk in it a certain calm disdain, but his perverseness seemed ungrateful considering the undeniable good usage and indulgence he had received from me. Again I sat ruminating what I should do. Mortified as I was at his behaviour, and resolved as I had been to dismiss him when I entered my offices, nevertheless I strangely felt something superstitious knocking at my heart, and forbidding me to carry out my purpose and denouncing me for a villain if I dared to breathe one bitter word against this forlornest of mankind. At last, familiarly drawing my chair behind his screen, I sat down and said, Bartleby, never mind then about revealing your history, but let me entreat you, as a friend, to comply as far as may be with the usages of this office. Say now you will help to examine papers to-morrow, or next day. In short, say now that in a day or two you will begin to be a little reasonable. Say so, Bartleby. At present I would prefer not to be a little reasonable, was his mildly cadaverous reply. 
Just then the folding doors opened, and Nippers approached. He seemed suffering from an unusually bad night's rest, induced by severer indigestion than carbon. He overheard these final words of Bartleby. "'Prefer not, eh?' gritted Nippers. "'I'd prefer him, if I were you, sir,' addressing me. "'I'd prefer him. I'd give him preferences, the stubborn mule. What is it, sir, that he prefers not to do now?' Bartleby moved not a limb. "'Mr. Nippers,' said I, "'I'd prefer that you would withdraw for the present.' Somehow, of late, I had got into the way of involuntarily using the word prefer upon all sorts of not exactly suitable occasions. And I trembled to think that my contact with the scrivener had already, and seriously, affected me in a mental way. But what further and deeper aberration might it yet produce? This apprehension had not been without efficacy in determining me to summary means. As Nippers, looking very sour and sulky, was departing, Turkey blandly and deferentially approached. "'With submission, sir,' said he, "'yesterday I was thinking about Bartleby here, and I think that if he would but prefer to take a quart of good ale every day, it would do much towards mending him.' and enabling him to assist in examining his papers. "'So you have got the word, too,' said I, slightly excited. "'With submission, what word, sir?' asked Turkey, respectfully crowding himself into the contracted space between the screen, and by so doing, making me jostle the scrivener. "'What word, sir?' "'I would prefer to be left alone here.' said Bartleby, as if offended at being mobbed in his privacy. "'That's the word, Turkey,' said I. "'That's it.' "'Oh, prefer. Oh, yes, queer word. I never use it myself. But, sir, as I was saying, if he would but prefer, Turkey,' interrupted I, "'you will please withdraw.' "'Oh, certainly, sir, if you prefer that I should.' As he opened the folding-door to retire, Nippers at his desk caught a glimpse of me, and asked whether I would prefer to have a certain paper copied on blue paper or white. He did not in the least roguishly accent the word prefer. It was plain that it involuntarily rolled from his tongue. I thought to myself, Surely I must get rid of a demented man who already has in some degree turned the tongues, if not the heads, of myself and clerks. But I thought it prudent not to break the dismission at once. The next day I noticed that Bartleby did nothing but stand at his window in his dead wall reverie. Upon asking him why he did not write, he said that he had decided upon doing no more writing. "'Why, how now? What next?' exclaimed I. "'Do no more writing?' "'No more.' "'And what is the reason?' "'Do you not see the reason for yourself?' he indifferently replied. 
I looked steadfastly at him, and perceived that his eyes looked dull and glazed. Instantly it occurred to me that his unexampled diligence in copying by his dim window for the first few weeks of his stay with me might have temporarily impaired his vision. I was touched. I said something in condolence with him. I hinted that of course he did wisely in abstaining for writing for a while, and urged him to embrace that opportunity of taking wholesome exercise in the open air. This, however, he did not do. A few days after this, my other clerks being absent, and being in a great hurry to dispatch certain letters by the mail, I thought that, having nothing else earthly to do, Bartleby would surely be less inflexible than usual and carry these letters to the post-office. But he blankly declined. So, much to my inconvenience, I went myself. Still added days went by. Whether Bartleby's eyes improved or not, I could not say. To all appearance, I thought they did. But when I asked him if they did, he vouchsafed no answer. At all events, he would do no copying. At last, in reply to my urgings, he informed me that he had permanently given up copying. What? exclaimed I. Suppose your eyes should get entirely well, better than ever before. Would you not copy then? I have given up copying, he answered and slid aside. End of part two